you're not going to wake up every morning and get and be smarter than everybody every day. Mm-hmm. That's a loser's game. Right. You have to be able to look at things in a way that other people aren't. You know, you're seeing things in a totally through a totally different prism. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in this week. Super fun conversation this week with Russ Piazza. Russ Piazza is the portfolio manager at Front Street Capital Management, and he manages the Tarkio Fund. Tarkio Fund had a great run a few years back as the top-rated mid-cap growth fund uh, right out of little old Missoula, Montana. So Russ managing uh, one of the top-rated funds in the country in its class and um, putting up just such a consistent record of success. Uh, Russ gets deep into the lineage of his investment philosophy, and he has great clarity about that philosophy, the rules uh, he uses to decide if a company is worth uh, investing in. And we also get into some details about uh, his attitude toward the bond market, Harkens back to a little bit uh, of my past. My first job out of college was as a bond trader. I traded mortgage-backed securities back in the day, the late 90s. Kind of a crazy uh, environment then, and it only got crazier. And Russ has some pretty clear ideas about what's going on in the bond markets now. So lots of interesting information um, for you to pay attention to in this, in, this, um, in this interview. First thing is just the clarity with which he makes decisions in his own practice, you know, he stays in his own lane and has great clarity about that. I try to pull him off script. I try to get him to speculate in areas where he um, where he might not be comfortable doing so, and he just refuses. And that, I, I, you know, I really admire that. The other thing is that, you know, if you just have personal investments of your own, I think the information that Russ offers in this interview is super useful. So without any further ado, I'll turn you over to Russ Piazza. All right, so we're here today with Russ Piazza. Russ, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Appreciate yeah. it. So, Russ, you are the sort of principal founder of Front Street Capital here in Missoula and the fund manager for the Tarkio Fund. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. And the Tarkio Fund, I mean, here in little old Missoula, Montana, was you, you guys had like a five-year run as the top-ranked mid-cap growth fund. I, I can't remember the exact category, but you guys were on top of your class for, for several years, right? Yeah, we actually, uh, Money Magazine had us the number one ranked mid-cap fund for the five-year period ending 2017. Okay. And then uh, Lipper had us the number one fund in the similar category for the three-year period ending 2017 uh, as well. And uh, the first quarter of 2018, uh, Morningstar has us dead last for the first quarter of 2018. Dead last. So it, you can go from hero to goat in this business uh, pretty quickly. I suppose you can. So that, I mean, we'll get into that because you've got a unique take on kind of that whole perspective of the market. Um, but first off, like, how on earth does this sort of thing happen in Missoula? Uh, I actually... Um, Started. Uh, I actually read uh, a book, of, uh, the, the several books actually, uh, by Philip Fisher, mm-hmm. 
and his most notable book was uh, uh, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, sure. which was a bestseller in the 50s. And I became very intrigued uh, with Phil's work. And Phil uh, had this idea that if a company was managed in a very specific way and did it consistently, it would create a culture that would unleash the best out of human potential, basically. And uh, that was sort of my epiphany in reading Phil's book. Uh, And I was struggling uh, finding an investment approach uh, that I was super comfortable with. And um, so I went looking for companies that matched up uh, in the Phil Fisher style, and I thought I found one, and I went and visited the, the company, or I actually uh, did the research on the company and uh, talked to the folks there. And it turned out that Phil Fisher, who at the time was 82 years old, I was in my early 30s, uh, Phil owned the same stock. Oh, Okay. And so I wrote him a fan letter, uh, and he responded immediately. And uh, actually, what he said was, he goes, uh, I normally don't respond to these kind of letters, but uh, just thinking about you doing this in Missoula, Montana, you're at such a disadvantage, he said, because right. of the, uh, the uh, inability to have companies that are locally that you could visit regularly and that I don't have to do a lot of traveling uh, to actually find these things out. Uh, he said he felt sorry for me, so he responded immediately. We had about a three-year relationship. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and Warren Buffett calls himself part Ben Graham, part Phil Fisher. Okay. And so he's a he's a uh, legendary name in the business. Absolutely. And so you're, at the time, early in your career, you're doing that here. You, you know, you're working with Piper Jaffray here in Missoula, right? Yeah, sort of under cloak. It wasn't uh, buying individual securities, making the decisions as a retail broker. It wasn't something that was uh, uh, part of the Piper Jaffray uh, game plan. Uh, and so we, we kind of did a little bit under cloak. We actually weren't supposed to be visiting companies and and uh, and uh, talking to management that was supposed to be reserved for the analyst only. Sure. Uh, but uh, uh, we we stuck our necks out and and uh, created a little bit of a track record, which uh, enabled the Piper Jaffray to actually continue to let us do what we were doing, and then eventually. Uh, thank God we uh, launched out and started uh, French Street Capital in 2006. Okay. And then launched the Tarkio Fund in 2011. 2011. Which is a no-load, uh, open-ended mutual fund. Okay. Define those terms for the listeners there. Yeah, no-load, no fee to get in, no fee to get out. Okay. Okay. Uh, open-ended that uh, as the money goes in, the fund gets a little larger. As the money goes out, the fund gets a little smaller. So as you can imagine, when we had uh, we were got a lot of publicity, uh, we had a lot of funds coming in, uh, and then the first quarter we had a lot of funds going out, right? Which is the nature of the beast. It, it would seem like people would want to buy when things are low, but it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of bandwagon effects, right? They totally. Want, yeah, yeah. So speaking of these bandwagon effects, I, you know, I, I I listened to one of your in, investor reports. And oh, you're a glutton for punishment, man. <laughs> exactly. So one of the quotes that stood out was in your introduction of you know, the key to investing. It's a key to many things, really, is sort of understanding what's knowable and understanding what's not knowable. And that kind of core philosophy seemed um, 
maybe as sort of one of the fundamental principles that, that drives your approach to investing. Yeah, I wish I would have made that up. Uh, that is the key. That's the number one key Warren Buffett philosophy is your circle of competency. Right. Uh, you draw a circle around yourself, and that's your circle of competency. And the size of the circle is not important, but understanding where its perimeters are is essential. And the closer you stay to the center of that circle, the greater your odds of success. And understanding where that those perimeters are is really the difference between uh, those that uh, can create uh, wealth over time and, and those that wind up running on a treadmill, in our opinion. Sure. And so much of that treadmill, in your view, is the noise of the marketplace, right? The daily fluctuations. The... Yeah, we'll take it one step further. The, the noise of the marketplace, we think, is created by uh, the noise that the market uh, reacts to geopolitical and macroeconomic events. Okay. And so it's those two things that combined that we think is out of anybody's circle of competence, that you have to understand that what you can't know is uh, the whole geopolitical uh, macroeconomic picture uh, and to make decisions based upon uh, just a lot of noise um, and then you have to accept the fact that in the short term, you know, the markets fluctuate wildly on all this stuff that you can't predict. And the discipline not to get caught up in that trap is uh, really the key to success. And again, the circle of competence is all about understanding that the geopolitical macroeconomic stuff is so far out of anybody's circle. Yet a huge portion of the industry dedicates itself completely to that side, to, the, to all that noise, right? They're trying to make sense of that noise. Yeah, which is the primary reason that 90% of all active managers don't beat the S&P 500 index. Right, right. As you just bought the index and left it alone, you would outperform 90% of all active managers. So what do you think it is that makes it so difficult to have a perspective like that? And I've heard you say that it's actually smart, it's, it's actually more difficult, the smarter you are, to have that long-term. Yeah, because you get force. drawn into it. Yeah, you go, yeah. well, I'm smarter than everybody. I ought to be able to figure it out better than everybody. Sure. And then the worst piece is the bigger the pool of money that you're managing, uh, the more you think you ought to be able to hire somebody to figure it all mm. out. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's very difficult to accept the fact that all these short-term fluctuations that you don't have any control over. Uh, and that's what gets most people. And by the way, it doesn't come naturally. And we've all gone through it. Yep. You know, until you somebody has to sit you down and get you to understand what you can know, what you can't know. And what you can know is that you're just buying a business. What you can't know is what's happening in the entire political geopolitical environment across the globe. So and, and actually, Warren Buffett went through the same thing. Uh, except the fact that he started investing when he was 11, and he read Ben Graham's book when he was 19. Okay. So he got those principles at an early age. And uh, but if you, if somebody doesn't sit you down and and, and instruct you, uh, it does not come naturally. So what was that moment for you? It's an were... epiphany. Yeah. So how, describe how that happened for you. Well, it's scary. You go. You you wonder how I could be responsible for other people's money, not knowing what the heck you were doing. Right. It's a it's a frightening moment, and from that day on, you you get to learn it in a hurry. So, are, are, is what you're saying that at some point you realize that hey, 
I'm actually just buying a piece of a business. So I might as well buy good businesses. Yeah, or cheap ones, whatever. Cheap ones. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Ben Graham, uh, Buffett calls himself part Ben Graham, part Phil Fisher. Uh, and the difference between the two is they both only invest uh, based upon the quality of the company and the valuation of the stock. Okay. Uh, ben Graham's idea was to buy reasonable companies at ultra-cheap prices. Uh, Fisher was the idea was to buy great companies at reasonable prices. Um, but uh, it's all about buying the business, whether you're buying – you know, something that's uh, just uh, ridiculously undervalued or buying something uh, at a fair price that's worth a that has a lot of qualitative factors. And the Ben Graham, uh, Buffett did the best Ben Graham thing for about the first third of his career. OK. Um, and uh, there's um, there's issues with that style of investing. And the biggest issue for Warren, for Buffett. Uh, was that uh, the the bigger the pool of money that you're managing, the harder it is to buy what he now uh, somewhat affectionately calls cigar butts. Hmm. Explain that a little bit more. It's, it's harder for a, a a a fund that large to to enter into smaller games. Yeah. So is the that the, 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 the Graham method is to search is to seek out. Uh, companies' uh, stocks that are selling at ultra-low valuations. Okay. Uh, and then the Graham approach was, well, the stock is so cheap, uh, all I need to do is to make sure that the company is going to survive whatever the incident was that uh, had made the, the, the stock go down originally in the first place. Sure. And... Um, and so the, the the qualitative factor is only that the company is going to be able to uh, to live another day, and then eventually they get over the problem, the stock goes back up, and you harvest that and buy another cheap one. Well, a lot of times, particularly back then, uh, the stocks that were selling that cheaply were sort of stocks that were uh, trade that traded eclectically, that were sort of fell fell through the cracks. Uh-huh. Um, of uh, of the normal trading system, uh, that's really not as effective anymore. In in in, in re- re- regard to the fact that you know you could do a lot of computer screening now that sorts a lot of that out. Okay. Uh, and then the the idea of calling something a cigar butt is about everything has value, even a used cigar butt sitting in the gutter. Mm. Uh, right. It's uh, it's a little grotesque. Uh, it's maybe a little bit soggy, but it's got one or two puffs, but the price is totally free. Sure. Okay. And so you conceptualizing your job as a portfolio manager of, you know, you're buying pieces of companies, you're buying businesses. You've got a pretty clear idea of the sorts of businesses you like to buy. Yeah, I, I should kind of follow up on that in the fact that, uh, and then originally, I, I I read Ben Graham's material okay. and the Buffett material, and uh, started down that path. Uh, and then, um, but then I read Phil Fisher's work, and really that was my epiphany. Uh, that uh, and Fisher's idea was to buy outstanding companies, being w- willing to pay quite a bit more than Ben Graham would be willing to pay, uh, and then hold them for indefinite periods of time. Okay. And that was really the, the breakthrough uh, idea of common stocks and uncommon profits was the concept that you might be able to hold, you know, a, a business. You could own a business 
indefinitely, like mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. And that's what uh, that's really was the brown, groundbreaking work that Phil brought to the table. And then everything sort of followed down from that ultra long term thought process. And what are the attributes that make for a great company under this sort of Fisher and uh, your your perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people would have a different concept of what would make a great company. You know, uh, Buffett has talked about, you know, companies with a moat. Uh, Fisher's idea was that if the company was managed in a very specific way Uh uh, that got the best out of their employees and they did it consistently over a long period of time, it would create a culture that would live and breathe on in in a respect that uh, you could actually own a company for uh, decades. And so that was uh, set me down the path of uh, looking at managements and management styles. And it led me to the work of uh, W. Edwards Deming. Deming, yes. uh, Who's the fellow that... uh, was uh, invited over to Japan after World War II, and the Japanese kind of developed their entire business uh, infrastructure, uh, thought process, philosophy mm-hmm. around this American's work. Uh, and it created the sort of the Japanese uh, miracle uh, that really blossomed in the 80s and the early 90s. Uh, and specifically, uh, the the very powerful business model that uh, Toyota used to dominate the the automobile industry for uh, several decades. Sure. And what are some of these um, sort of management philosophies or guiding principles of firms like Toyota or firms that sort of have embraced the Deming model? Yeah. So uh, we have a a criteria of, of six bullet points, but the, uh, the, the two, well, there's probably three, uh, that are very, very uh, right off the Deming playbook uh, is, number one, having an ultra long-term focus. Okay. As and a business. As a business, yes. yeah. That every decision that a manager makes, there's a trade-off between the short-term and the long-term. And it's a filter that we use to, as a bent uh, that we want companies that are always leaning into the long term. Okay. Uh, you know, there's uh, we have several companies that would be great examples of that, but a really clear example uh, for most people that can relate to is that Wall Street generally is uh, 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 is frustrated with the Costco model, in in the fact that uh, they think Costco is managed uh, primarily for the benefit of the employees. Uh, and the customers, mm-hmm. uh, and they're willing to sacrifice short-term earnings to get there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Wall Street doesn't like that. No, they don't like that. But, but you like, like it. Yeah, yeah, we love it. And when, when that does occur, uh, and they do have a shortfall in earnings uh, because they're concerned about those two constituencies, uh, the stock plummets and gives us an opportunity to add to our position to buy more. at yeah. attractive, uh, at least fair prices. Sure. Yeah. And so having a long-term focus is a, is a, is a key element and a, and a key uh, Deming point. Um, another one would be, uh, should I go on? Or? Well, I had a follow-up question yeah. about it. So long-term focus, I guess I'm interested in sort of how you know if the company has a long-term focus. So your point about, you know, take a Costco and you can see that they're maybe making management decisions that favor the employees and the, and the customer experience over the shareholders, how do you sort of, what sorts of things do you look for there to quantify 
or to know if a company has a long-term focus? Yeah, the, the biggest, the biggest uh, uh, area would be when they run into problems. Uh, yeah. When, when, they're, when they're under stress, you find out who you're dealing with. Okay. And uh, you want to make sure that they don't cut their R&D budgets. They don't start laying a pe- bunch of people off. Uh, that they're willing to take a little short, short-term pain, uh, and which means to disappoint Wall Street in the short term uh, for the long-term health of the company. Uh, we don't own it, uh, but uh, you know you, you can uh, look at the Amazon model, and they have uh, really taken this idea yeah. of having a long-term focus and uh, shunning uh, Wall Street. And eventually, they Wall Street comes around, and they have in the Amazon story, Absolutely. and it's a remarkable story. And really, it's um, the the probably they don't adhere to all of our principles, but from that one principle of having a long term focus, uh, one should look at the as a as a case study. You could certainly look at Amazon. Mm-hmm. Another one of your attributes is integrity, trust within the organization. Um, how did that emerge for you, and, and, and how do you make judgments about that? Yeah, that was a pure Phil Fisher yeah. uh, principle, and really uh, uh, Buffett has built his entire organization around that concept. Uh, and for us, the, the litmus test is that uh, any kind of interaction we have with the company, whether it be indiv- personally or reading an annual report or reading a shareholder letter or listening to a conference call, uh, we want to have a little warm, fuzzy feeling about uh, the experience afterwards sure. rather than you get that little you know, pit in the gut of your stomach after uh, listening to or having some interaction with somebody. And, uh, over time, it becomes pretty evident who you're dealing with. And that's the really the great benefit of being a long-term investor yeah. because uh, you can sort of research things and figure things out uh, or think that you know something or can research it in the short term, but you don't really know until time passes and you find how people behave uh, through different cycles and certainly during stressful periods. This is Sam Schultz, and you're listening to A New Angle. All right, special announcement for all of you today. You probably know that this podcast is produced out of the College of Business at the University of Montana. But what you might not know is that the college will celebrate its 100th anniversary this year, and we have a big celebration planned. On September 21st and 22nd, we'll be celebrating our centennial with a full schedule of events, and we'd love for you to get involved. It's going to be an awesome couple of days. So please check out our website, www.business.umt.edu slash centennial for all the information. Hope to see you out there. It's going to be fun. Yeah, can you maybe walk through, I don't know if you can walk through an example or not, but like, what is your process for deciding, okay, that's a company I want to buy a part of. Like, you know, identifying a prospect and then validating whether or not they hit your criteria and then deciding, okay, we're going to, we're going to put money into this. Yeah. So we, I mean, on a daily basis, we are uh, scavenging through, you know, all kinds of information and reports and reading all the periodicals and, oh my God, what's on the web is, is, um, is uh, an insatiable amount of information. Sure. Uh, and we just expose ourselves to everything we possibly can. And then once in a while, something pops up 
uh, that's kind of that's very obvious to us that would be a good starting point, kind of a hook. Yep. Uh, and uh, uh, the example we like to use uh, was that uh, it was probably maybe, I don't know, 13, 14 years now. Uh, but I read an article about a company uh, whose CEO was, uh, I think at the time, maybe in his late 50s. Uh, and he had a hundred year plan. Wow. And so for us, I go, okay, there's that's, a starting yeah, spot. Yeah, that sounds like a, a company we should look at. Yeah, and it's so unusual. Uh, and most investors wouldn't, you know, uh, care uh, doodly squat about that kind of stuff. But for us, you know, all the lights went off. And as it turns out, these guys were the real deal. And it's, the company's called National Instruments. We've owned it all this time. Okay. It's been a, a fabulous investment for us. And it's a company that literally every time uh, I have any kind of contact uh, with this company, I get that warm and fuzzy feeling. This sure. is a wonderful organization that's uh, truly run in a very special way. So I'm trying to get a sense or help the listener get a sense for how unusual your approach is. I mean, it, you hear so much about day trading and moving fast in and out of companies in the market. And I, I think I read somewhere like the average ownership horizon of a typical stock is is measured in seconds now rather than in decades, like maybe with Tarkio Fund. You know, how do you how do you interact with others in this in this competitive landscape? I mean, do they view well, I you as... Re, I think that revolves back, I think, to your first question. Yeah. Uh, it's a big advantage of being in Missoula, Montana. Sure, yeah, no social uh, We pressure. don't think we're unusual. We're steeped in this every single day. Our team in the office, that's all we do. It's all we think about. Uh, it's our culture as sure. well. And so, actually, we have not, it's, we've done this so long that when we see behavior that's outside of this funny little circle that we've developed, you know, it seems very unusual to us. So, um, so being in Missoula is almost an advantage for you. We think it's a huge yeah. advantage, yeah. yeah. And it gives us the, uh, the, the, the be because we think, uh, and, and uh, the, I'm, uh, this might be an arrogant statement, but be, we think that since we're looking at things from such a, a different angle through a different prism, mm -hmm. that we could take the same information that the rest of Wall Street is looking at and come up with a completely different conclusion. Sure, sure. I mean, do you view yourself? And that's that's the advantage. You're not going to wake up every morning and get and be smarter than everybody every day. Mm -hmm. That's a loser's game. Right. You have to be able to look at things in a way that other people aren't. You know, you're seeing things in a totally through a totally different prism. Yeah. Do you view yourself, therefore, as a contrarian, or I don't even yeah, know I how think you can get really caught up in a in a weird uh, chasing your tail kind of circle by thinking of yourself or, or uh, trying to, you know, always be a contrarian because you wind up being contrary to contrary to contrary. Yeah, yeah. You can get yourself pretty confused. You get caught up in the identity of just yeah, being a contrarian. Again, I think we go back to our original, uh, uh, the original uh, piece of the conversation. Just know what your circle of competency is mm -hmm. and stay as close to the center of that as possible. And if it's contrary, then so be it. Uh, sometimes it will be, sometimes it may not be. Right. Uh, but you got to just figure out, you got to know that circle. So maybe that's a, a, an interesting way or a, a smooth way to transition into kind of this next area that I'd like to ask you about. And that's your sort of view on interest rates and fixed income and the sort of notion that, oh, yeah, we all think of bonds as not a risky investment. Yet you argue that 
they're a tremendously risky investment at this at this moment in our economy. Yeah, at this moment in time. Um, so investing is about uh, putting up money today and getting something more back in the future. Yeah, It's really not any more complicated than that. So the investor's job is to somehow look out into the future and determine what the cash flow uh, of that entity is and then decide what would represent a fair price to pay. Sure. Uh, and overpaying for anything eventually uh, becomes a very uh, painful experience at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, all we see in, in the bond market is that uh, rates have come up here just recently, but not that long ago. Uh, all we could see is that people were uh, investing money for 30 years uh, and only getting 2% a year uh, on, on their cash flow. Yeah, and, so can, before and to we... us, um, that is a, a, a pittance uh, given the amount of money that you were putting up. And so it indicated to us that that, um, that asset was just grossly uh, over, overvalued or overpriced. Okay. So can you give the listeners kind of a basic on how the bond market works, what you're buying when you buy a bond, you know, how rates are, interest rates are sort of uh, related to pricing and how all that works? I mean, with the stock, it's pretty, it seems pretty intuitive. But with bonds, I, I don't think people get the intuition quite as easily. Yeah, well, they should. They should. Because it's just math. Right. Uh, so the idea, let's say you put up a hundred thousand dollars today, mm-hmm. uh, and you lock in 2% for 30 years. So for that hundred thousand, you're going to get $2,000 per year for each of the 30 years, and then get your money back at the 30 year period. It's all that is guaranteed, uh, through a, basically a contract that can be sold to somebody else, which mm-hmm. is uh, basically what the bond market is. And so, uh, let's say interest rates, go up to pick a number. Uh, uh, we would think the mean would be somewhere around maybe 6%. Historical mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. historical mean. And so let's say the rates do rise to 6%. Then a brand new bond, just like the one that you had locked in at 2%, for the same $100,000 would actually get $6,000 a year. Right. When you're stuck at only getting $2,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So in this secondary market, Nobody in their right mind is going to pay you $100,000 to get $2,000 a year right. when you can go out and buy a brand new one and get $6,000 a year for the same $100,000 investment. So they're going to discount your 2% bond to make the yield to maturity, which you can actually just plug right into your computer uh, if you pull up expanded bond tables and just fill in the blanks and see what the value of that 2% bond would look like in a 6% environment. Right. So you have this this asset that you paid $100,000 for. You're getting 2% every quarter, every year, whatever the terms are. But now you can't sell it for that, essentially. You can only sell it for $96,000 or something like that, depending on the, 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 the principles of the table. Yeah, and the principles of the table are dependent upon, A, what the coupon rate is, and very more importantly, actually, is, B, what the maturity is. So the longer the maturity, uh, the greater that bond is going to fluctuate with uh, changing interest rates. So an example I would give you would be a 25-year bond locked in at 2%, and the rates go to 6%. uh, The $100,000 actually turns into $48,000 and change. Sure. So... You know, people get when they buy a stock. By the way, that's uh, half. Right. 
<laughs> so, so people get when they buy a stock, or at least I, I sort of assume that people get when they buy a stock. That, oh, yeah, the market could, well, could go up. It could go down. The company could go out of business. But I don't think they get this notion that when you buy a bond that there's risk there that there might. I mean, and they're being told by this industry that as you get older, you need to move out of risky investments and into riskless investments or less risky investments. And fixed income is sort of just the term fixed income. It almost implies a stability that that isn't there. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the. the, the there's two types of risks in bonds that uh, if you pull any textbook out, it's an interest rate risk and a credit risk. Right. Most people kind of focus on the credit risk, but uh, the, the last time the, uh, the 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 last time the interest rates peaked uh, was during the Paul Volcker um, era, um, and that was 1982. Uh huh. So for the for virtually all investment, uh, probably 90 percent of all investment professionals. Uh, all they have known is that interest rates decline. They've never lived in an environment where interest rates rise. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the idea of interest rate risk, uh, it's been so long since interest rates have gone up uh, that the memories have completely faded. And in our opinion, that's, that's a classic um, characteristic of a, of, a, of a bubble. Of a bubble. Is that yeah. it's been so long since people have been hurt in that particular asset class uh, that they completely forget about uh, what the potential risks are. Mm -hmm. um, and it's memories that, uh, enable, uh, that do not enable bubbles to get recreated very quickly. Uh, and the real dangerous ones are the ones where... Um, the, that the the memory of uh, the last time that there was a great um, debacle in that asset class has been so long uh, that people have be literally become immune to the idea that uh, interest rate risk is uh, is not a uh, a viable concept anymore. And so there's a few factors contributing to keeping interest rates low for as long as they've been low. Can you walk us through? Yeah, so bubbles mm -hmm. get created. Yeah. Uh, a lot of moons have to line up in a very special way. Mm -hmm. uh, but when they do, oh my God, uh, yeah. it, it, it can be uh, a very, very uh, tragic situation for some people. Uh, and uh, in this particular case, I mean, you could sort of make a case in 2008, 2009, that interest rates uh, should be at zero mm -hmm. uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, but not in 2018 when we're at full employment and inflation is really starting to uh, to rear up its head here. Uh, I was going to say it's ugly head, but really inflation is is not a you know traditionally over time. Right. There's, we've had more times of inflation than than deflation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's not something that destroys an economy. Yeah, a lot of people uh, argue it does, that it's not good for long term interest rates. Right. Right. But and when so you're starting at zero, uh, and inflation starts to starts to kick up, oh my God, the moons are starting to turn exactly in the other in the other direction. So you have moved all of your clients out of bonds. Is that right? Well, in or... addition to managing the Tarkio Fund, right. we have a legacy business of uh, actually um, advising uh, individual clients uh, on sort of uh, portfolio uh, management to sure. some degree. 
uh, it's a pretty rudimentary process for us since we what we do is primarily manage the the Tar Heel fund. Okay. Uh, but in that regard, yeah, we we stopped we stopped buying bonds cold turkey in two thousand and nine. How did that and go over with one you, since? How'd that go over with your clients? Not so good. Yeah. Uh, a lot of I mean, uh, I'm a baby boomer. I work with a lot of baby boomers who've been doing this a long time. A lot of people are are entering into retirement age. And uh, I would say we probably have sacrificed a good 30% of our clients uh, by not wanting to, uh, by absolutely refusing to buy long-term bonds. And uh, we could have bought short-term bonds, but literally, I mean, literally, uh, the return would be zero. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we told them, if you want, you can go put your money in a coffee can and bury right. in the backyard or in a the sock mattress. or something. but. You know, we're not the, the whole uh, what commonly is referred to as the yield curve, which is the relationship between short-term bonds and long-term mm-hmm. bonds. Uh, the whole thing was a mess because the short-term bonds, where you get protection, you literally could get no interest. Right. Now, Reese, just in the last six months, that's changed. Uh, we think it's the the beginning of the um, of the curve uh, moving uh, rates higher and bonds lower. Okay, so what you're suggesting is maybe this bubble is starting to uh, to leak a little bit. Yeah, maybe? I think it's more than leaked. It's more really than leaked. Started, so the uh, unwinding is starting. That we really, yeah. Well, I've been wrong. I've been, I've been head faked on that one a few times uh, before since 2009. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, and predicting the end of bubbles is uh, not something that uh, one wants to make a living off of. Uh, it's a very lonely space to be. Um, and, uh, I wouldn't recommend doing it for a living, but, um, yeah, though it's, uh, in our opinion, uh, the tide has turned. Yeah. Uh, and in addition to that, we've just had a very dramatic, uh, corporate tax cut, uh, that, uh, would, you would assume, uh, would provide uh, larger deficits, not smaller deficits going forward, uh, government deficits. Uh Uh-huh which would in turn put even more pressure on interest rates. Explain that mechanism to the listeners. They might not get that connection between large corporate tax cut and 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 the necessity to finance a deficit. Well, you borrow, I mean, if you lower your revenues, uh, uh, the only way that you could fill the gap is, I mean, you could do it by the economy growing and that'll be part of it, but the other option is to have to borrow more money. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanna make something pretty clear here. We're starting to get into uh, an area that uh, we've already defined as outside of our competence. Yeah. Uh, and that is talking about the geopolitical and macroeconomic stuff. Uh, uh, from our point of view, uh, really, there's only one reason why we have identified the bond market being in a very dangerous situation, and that is the actual cash flow return that you get uh, by investing your money for 30 years. It's a valuation idea, not a geopolitical macro idea. Okay. And the fact that you're going to, people are putting up money for 30 years and only getting 2% of their money. And so in the stock market, if you reverse that, um, you know, that would be the, the equivalent of a company selling at 50 times earnings. Hmm. So, yeah, that was a question I had was how, how do you reconcile this sort of position on the bond market with your, your sort of notion that all that geopolitical stuff is noise and, and you just articulated it super clearly. Yeah, this is about sort of fair value for an investment. Yeah, it's all, it's all about fair value. Uh, and when something is grossly overpriced, 
you know that that is enough for us. Now, obviously, like everybody else, uh, we can build a case around it, uh, but we're you know the the reasons are not important. Uh, just the pure economics of investing money for 20 years at 2% without ever having an opportunity of getting a nickel more right. uh, is, a, is a very, very dangerous proposition. So there's some hints that this bubble is starting to unwind. Yeah, again. What is that? And that, I know you're not that, trying that's to call a, that. That's something that we could accurately call. You know, uh, obviously when, you know, you've, met, you've taken a stand, you know, every time something happens that looks like it's going to, uh, occur, you go, oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, may or may not be the time, but it still doesn't make the, the investment any more attractive. Sure. If, if it happens to be today or uh, a year, two, three years from now. So timing notwithstanding. Not and by the way, if, they, if the rates stay down forever, I still wouldn't invest money for 2% for 30 years. Right. It's, it's a, a dumb call. thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we're not in the business of doing dumb things. <laughs> so I guess to kind of think about this more in terms of how it affects the, the average person on main street like interest rates go to 10 percent, whether it's in two years a year tomorrow like what does that mean for the average homeowner the average taxpayer the average investor the average person that just sort of well all... i think anybody could start once you make the premise then you can start thinking about the things that could occur yeah. uh, once that happens. And we're, you know, we could do that uh, and we could speculate on that a little bit. But, you know, the, 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 the core idea, again, is investing money at 30 years for at 2% is, is a dumb thing to do. Okay. Now, that said, again, we could speculate like other people. I would think, A, people aren't going to want to move because mm. they're not going to want a new mortgage. They can't afford they're locked it. in yeah, yeah. at a low interest rate. They pay in 3.5%. I would think percent. people yeah. would probably start remodeling their homes mm -hmm. uh, and neighborhoods might even start to, uh, to improve as people pour money into their existing homes so they don't have to give up their mortgage rate. Yeah, that might uh, actually bring housing prices down because not as many people yeah, are. I haven't really thought that. Every, sure, sure. I mean, this is all like dominoes. You know, one goes and then you take the next one, the next one. And, you know, all of a sudden you're 15 dominoes out and you're going, yeah. wow, how did I get here? You know, Russ is not in the prediction business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're consistent. <laughs> I suppose you have to be to do what you do. Uh, again, it's a matter of sticking within your circle of competency. Yeah. yeah. Like the circle of competence. How did you develop the kind of clarity you have around it? And in your career, has that been tested? Have you been, you know, I've tried to draw you out of that circle of competence, and you're very clear on what's in and what's out. Yeah, if, seemingly if, if so. anybody that's listened to Warren Buffett over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, yeah. it's, it's, he pounds it out again and again and again. If there's, it's the one concept that he is crystal clear on. Um, and once you start thinking along those lines, it, it, it becomes embedded uh, in your entire thought process over time. It, it, oh, these things take time. Uh, they don't, again, they, they don't traditionally come naturally. Uh, but it, it, as you do it again and again and again, it, it becomes rote. Uh, and that's uh, where one kind of, that's where we got to where we were. Sure, where I, we are I, I suppose, and you have good performance as a fund that reinforces it. Like, hey, yeah. we're on to something. And here. every time you get out of that circle, you get burned. True. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You run right back to the middle as fast as you can. 
I mean, have you guys had those sorts of experiences? Oh, totally. Or? And Buffett's had them too. You know, of you course. just I could you could see them over the years, and uh, you just run right back to the center and go, "Oh God," you know, it's back to home base. Do you think this clarity about the circle is? I mean, you have a, you have some clarity as to what sort of companies you look for. Um, or do you know? Do you know other fund managers that have a different type of clarity about? Totally. Yeah, yeah. So maybe totally. talk about some of your some other players in the marketplace and what they believe in, or. Well, I mean, some could become very industry specific. Yeah. If they understand an industry better than anybody else, um, you know, we would have a problem with that because, you know, the nice thing about having management as your circle of competency is that you could stick very tightly to your circle and have a diversified set of companies uh, that you're invested in mm -hmm. because it's based upon how they're managed, not what they do for a living. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there's a lot of uh, – and, and yeah, some, some people are going to come up with really cool circle of competencies uh, that are way different from us that would be very effective and probably all, a whole bunch of fun. Are there any out there that you admire? You look at those guys, those guys do it right. They have a lot of clarity. Oh, yeah. I, I, it, well, obviously, you know, I keep – but anybody that's in this business is going to keep harping back to the Buffett story. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you watch what he's done and how he's he's stuck with what uh, he knows and has created this concept of a moat, and it is uh, – it's inspiring. Yeah, totally. Uh, a lot of investors that do what, you know, the, the – that – uh, have had good track records over time. Their circle of competency is kind of more on the valuation side, more on the Ben Graham side. Mm -hmm. um, that's not an area that appeals to us as much anymore. Once in a while, we'll buy a cigar butt, but sure. Uh, if we if we run into a problem, usually it's going to be with one of those. It would seem that that cigar butt thing could draw you into the noise too. You could get into all the reasons why a company's you know undervalued that are maybe less yeah, related to I don't to know the, about no? that. Okay. I think uh, being a true cigar butt guy, you could you actually can really avoid the noise. Okay. Uh, you could be very disciplined in that area and avoid the noise. The the, the biggest problem with the uh, the Ben Graham style, in our opinion, is that uh, computer screening has uh, co you know combed out. Uh, a lot of the stuff that got really, really, really cheap, and the way you make your money on the on the on the Ben Graham style is having a few of them that you know go multiple, you know, five, ten times your money okay. because you bought them so cheap. And we think the the range kind of maybe has gotten a little narrower for that uh, style of investing because the computer can screen out the ones that get you know really ridiculously cheap and. Um, you know, those those get bid up a lot faster. So just data processing is moving so much faster? And, you know, the well, it's just the ability for the computer to go in and, 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 and run through the valuation numbers and spit out a list right. of, the, of the cheapest stocks where, you know, back in uh, Warren Buffett's day or Ben Graham's day, you'd have to go through individual S&P sheets right. uh, to find. Uh, and it was just a very labor-intensive uh, process now again you can you can program a computer to do that and we think it's pulled out a lot of the some of the advantage of uh, that style of investing where 
identifying, you know, managements that treat their employees well and behave well and have passion and purpose and break down barriers in the organization and drive fear out of the organization so people can make uh, decisions uh, and are disciplined with how they allocate their capital, which is our criteria, can't screen for that stuff. Hmm. So we think that our process uh, has longevity to it. Well, I mean, I suppose in this industry, you're, you're, the, the conventional wisdom is uh, you're- Irrespective, by the way, of the first quarter of 18. Yeah, so that's what I was, kind of, <laughs> that's what I was getting at, Russ, was- you know, you have this five-year run as the top, you know, fund in your class, and then you start out the first quarter of 18 as, as dead last in your class. Well, we've had other bad quarters, Justin, let me tell you. Okay. In, so, this, in, the, in this five-year span. And you haven't wavered. So you're not wavering with some short-term bad news. Yeah, so our, our strong, strong belief is that over the long term, if, you know, we're in the top even the top five percentile or the top one percentile, even the top 10 percentile um, uh, over a five year period. And actually our track record goes, you know, probably back almost 30 years now mm -hmm. with the private accounts. Uh, but if we do something radically different or maybe even slightly different, uh, you know, if we're at the top five percentile, are we going to get to the top two percentile right. or work our way back to the mean? Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's almost a superstition you know, not to mess with what works. Well, that's consistent with your view of what makes for a good company, too. Totally. Yeah, yeah. What's next for Tarkio Fund? I mean, what's, what's, I guess just do the same thing. Keep doing what you're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, historically, you know, uh, short periods of underperformance are followed up by long periods of outperformance. Sure. So, uh, and uh, during uh, market dislocations that, that like we've had, uh, it gives us the ability to reposition the fund uh, for the next five years. So uh, we've never been more excited about uh, our future. But awesome. And one final question, Russ, is and, and I want to I want to ask this in the right way. Like I really admire and respect and am intrigued by this clarity you have about the circle of confidence. What, how do you, I mean, you have great clarity of what you know, what you don't know, what is knowable, what's not knowable. What do you do to learn? Like, where does learning come into this? Oh, my how God. How do you learn as an individual, as a, as a fund manager? Like oh, what, my God. Where does that take you? I mean, this whole management process is is a continuous journey yeah. on learning. Okay. It, it's, it's, it's so dynamic. Uh, and these are living organizations, you know, with human beings and, you know, how they, and we're learning, we find, you know, different ways that companies are uh, adhering to our principles, Great. you know, really not right off the Deming playbook, but doing all kinds of uh, unique ways of breaking down barriers and getting uh, employees engaged and, you know, finding companies that are doing it in a different way. That's the most exciting thing that Excellent. we run into. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where the learning, that's where the sort of the passion for new stuff is. Yeah, no, it's the, it, the, the learning is just the funnest part. Awesome. Well, I wish you all the best. I hope you can uh, stay the course, really, because that's kind of what you do, right? Yeah, well, whether, <laughs> the, we're going to stay the course. Whether performance goes up or down, we can't guarantee. But the only thing we can guarantee is we'll stay the course. 
So if people want to learn more about Front Street, learn more about the Tarkia Fund, learn more about you and your work, your teammates, how, how do they Yeah, just go to the, just Google Tarkia or Front Street Capital. We've got a lot of information on our website. We've got... Uh, we have a hold an investor meeting every year, and those sure. are uh, we put those up on the web. And uh, we've written letters on most of the companies that we own in the portfolio, uh, showing a history of uh, how we found them and what they've done over the years. And uh, so, yeah, there's plenty of information available. Awesome. Well, check it out, Russ. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Okay, super fun conversation with Russ. Hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we have a dual interview with Jason Williams, the CEO of Blackfoot Communications, and Joe Fungi, Vice President of Innovation over at Blackfoot. Uh, Joe recently came on board and is leading up a new initiative called C2M Beta. It's a technology incubator here in Missoula, Montana. And uh, they're just getting that project off the ground. We talked to Jason and Joe about uh, how Blackfoot Communications is kind of reconceptualizing how it does business, how it views its role in the Montana economic development ecosystem, and just a neat conversation with those guys. Really cool to um, to talk about a company that you might assume um, needs to innovate and how they're kind of looking at uh, changing the way they do business, conceptualizing opportunity, and... Um, and making changes. Stay tuned for next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. They're one of the largest electrical wholesale suppliers in the country with nearly 600 locations nationwide. CED is a privately held business-to-business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, please rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the podcast. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow. And third, just tell your friends about it. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this podcast happen. First off, thanks to Elizabeth Willie, Communications Director here at the College of Business. And thanks to our fabulous interns, Savannah Slutton and Max Gibson. I'd also like to give a special shout out to VTO for providing us with music. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jeff Meese. As we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.